The NATO summit in Vilnius, was it a complete disappointment for Ukraine or was there a bright side? While experts are analyzing the results, the armed forces of Ukraine are gradually moving forward using adjusted tactics. You're listening to the podcast Explaining Ukraine. Explaining Ukraine is a podcast by Ukraine World, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Hermolenko, I'm Ukrainian philosopher, journalist and chief editor of Ukraine World. I invite you to the overview of the key events and trends in and around Ukraine during the past week, from July 11th until July 17th, 2023, delivered by my colleagues Maxim Panchenko and Anastasia Heresimchuk, journalists and analysts at Ukraine World. Ukraineworld.org is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. Let me remind you that you can support us at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. You can also support our volunteer trips to the front lines at paypal ukraine.resistinggmail.com. Hello, dear listeners. My name is Maxim Panchenko. I'm journalist and analyst at Ukraine World, and I'm joined by Anastasia Heresimchuk, my colleague, equally analyst and journalist at Ukraine World. Today, we are going to discuss the seven key events and generally the key events in and around Ukraine for the past week during the period of 11th to 17th of July 2023. Nastya, before we plunge into each of the topics, can you please provide us an overview of what we're going to be discussing today? Hello, Maxim. Today, we are going to talk about Ukrainian counteroffensive. And we are also going to tell about Russia's continue, continuing shelling of Ukrainian territories, as well as, uh, as the violation of international law and human rights by Russians. We are going to tell about the Associated Press investigation on Ukrainian civilians detained by Russia. We also uh, are going to talk about the results of NATO summit held in Vilnius, about the uh, the suspension of bra- uh, of gra- grain deal, and we also want to touch upon the visit of President of South Korea to Kiev. Indeed, there is quite a lot to discuss this week. This was a very fruitful week, both both domestically and internationally. But of course, we're going to start discussing the developments around Ukraine. Uh, with, uh, as usual, with the counteroffensive, uh, which has been going on in Ukraine for, well, reportedly for around six weeks, but nobody knows for sure because there was no formal uh, announcements about uh, announcement about that, of course. So the counteroffensive has been going, as I said, for around six weeks so far, and there is some official data from Ukraine's uh, authorities uh, about how much Ukraine uh, has advanced. Ukraine has reportedly liberated uh, 31 square kilometers in the east, uh, and that, of course, would be primarily around Bakhmut uh, to the north and to the south of the uh, of this uh, town, and also around 180 square kilometers in the south of uh, of Ukraine, in the southern part of Donetsk Oblast, but also Zaporizhia Oblast and Kherson Oblast. And of course, uh, the world is mostly looking at that uh, the developments in the south of Ukraine's Ukraine mostly because it appears to be the more the most imminent part of Ukraine's counteroffensive. And again, uh, the movement on the ground has uh, has been quite slow this far. And we talked about this in our previous episodes, uh, that Ukraine 
chooses not to go on offense on, on a full-blown offense and uh, because there are minefields and that would be unwise in many respects but ukraine rather bets now uh, on the exhaustion of uh, russian forces ukraine is trying to lock up russian forces in the in that big patch of land that is in the south of ukraine and uh, it is trying to um uh, well, as I said, to lock up those forces, to cut logistics to the south of Ukraine for Russians. And uh, in this respect, we're also going to touch upon the topic of the Crimean bridge and the developments around it this morning, a little bit later. Uh, but uh, generally, it seems like what is happening in the south of Ukraine resembles very much what was happening in, on the right bank of Kherson before its liberation, that uh, Ukraine is trying to win the artillery duel and uh, that way to make Russians have no choice other than to leave these territories because of their uh, lack of means to stay and to defend themselves in the occupied territories. These presumptions are confirmed by the information provided by world media, international media this week, uh, because, for instance, there have been reports that Ukraine is winning uh, the counter uh, battery, um, the counter artillery uh, warfare, big time. Ukraine loses four times as little uh, artillery as Russia does, uh, and in other respects, in uh, heavy weapon weaponry, in tanks, in uh, infantry vehicles, uh, the losses are reported to be more or less the same. So, but we know that artillery is key in the in the battleground. So uh, it is it is very good indeed that Ukraine takes its time to uh, to pay attention, you know, to to, to 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 these aspects and to save as many lives as possible before any decisive movements on the map, so to say, will happen. And also, there are reports by international media equally uh, telling us that. Um, Ukraine has reconsidered a bit its tactics on the ground since the start of the of the counteroffensive six weeks back, because uh, reportedly Ukrainian losses of heavy weaponry uh, during the first weeks of the of the counteroffensive totaled at around twenty percent of the entirety of means that Ukrainians had. Uh, it is, remains unclear whether that was the entirety of weapons that Ukraine possesses at all, or the ones that had been prepared for the counteroffensive, for the counteroffensive. But each way, it's uh, a significant uh, figure. So Ukrainians tried to take it slower after that, after realizing these dynamics, and reportedly after that, after Ukraine got involved into this counter artillery duel. Uh, Ukraine managed to uh, diminish its uh, losses down to 10% of the heavy weaponry. So basically, Ukraine diminished them double fold, which of course is a very good development. Uh, so that is that is a brief, or maybe not so brief, assessment uh, on my part. Maybe my colleague Nasta has anything to add, uh, given her considerations on the topic. Yes, Maxim, I would like to pay attention to the media side of all the events, because we hear uh, in Ukrainian media and in the world media, there are so many speculations about Ukrainian counteroffensive. And we also hear about, you know, this raised expectations from Ukrainian counteroffensive, uh, which is negative, because uh, as uh, Ukrainian officials and military commanders told that it is not a movie, it is not an 
action movie. Counteroffensive is a difficult set of operations and the lives of uh, soldiers are at stake. So the pace, the tactics, uh, the scope of counteroffensive is to be decided by Ukrainian commanders under the leadership of uh, president and the minister of defense and the uh, commander of uh, Ukrainian armed forces. So we shouldn't be impatient and we shouldn't speculate too much about what is going on and what should be achieved in what period of time. Uh, Because all the actions are uh, taken on the ground and only people on the ground know the real situation. So uh, Ukraine, uh, having limited uh, number of weapons, limited number of people, should uh, fight the war smartly. And these changes of tactics, despite uh, the fact that uh, the actions are going to be slower, uh, actually make sense because we need to save as many lives as possible and we need to save as much weaponry as possible. Uh, That's why uh, we just should hope for uh, better, we should uh, root for our armed forces and shouldn't speculate too much on this topic. Yes, I agree. And of course, understandably, everybody is expecting, especially in the world, not just in Ukraine, uh, some bright developments on the ground. And of course, there were some this morning. So it's time we switched to this new episode of the warfare in the gr- on the ground, which proves that uh, the plan Uh, the planning of Ukrainian uh, military leadership is paying off and uh, it only confirms that uh, what I said earlier, that uh, Ukrainians are trying to lock Russians up in the occupied territories to couple their logistics off in order to push them away from those territories. What I'm talking about is this development, the developments this morning around the Crimean bridge, because around 3 a.m. this morning, the Crimean bridge was... Uh, attacked once more, as it already had been uh, for the first time in autumn 2022, in October, I believe it was. And, um, well, it is such a bright development in so many uh, different uh, aspects, because first of all, uh, and uh, in the most important dimension for the front lines, uh, this is the major artery uh, artery for for the, uh, not procurement, but rather for the... um, uh, for the Russians to bring their weaponry to the south of Ukraine. they, In a major way, they did this through the Crimean Bridge, through the occupied Crimea, and thus through the deep rear of the Russian uh, side of the front lines. Uh, reportedly, as many as 70% of deliveries of those weaponries uh, had been effected through, through the Crimean Bridge. And now the Crimean Bridge uh, was blown up once again this morning, reportedly and preliminarily, uh, this uh, happened uh, quite differently than the previous time. Uh, this time, the uh, the bridge was reportedly attacked by water scooters, basically, a couple of water scooters that uh, basically rammed the bridge and blew up the roadway on the bridge. And now we need to remember that the bridge consists of the of several branches, the, the railway branch and the roadway branch. And uh, only the, the latter one was damaged. Uh, the several 
portions of the uh, of the bridge were demolished uh, fell to the sea and thus it will take some time based on Russia's previous experience after the first explosion much time to uh, repair that and of course this is going to impact the uh, how swiftly deliveries to to the uh, southern occupying territories occupied territories are going to take place but also this is about symbolism because for Russians, uh, the Crimean bridge is something very sacred. And uh, this, of course, is uh, thus a big blow on Russia's image, uh, because it could have been explained as a one-off thing in October. But after that, there was this th th these pompous announcements that we are going to protect the Crimean bridge even more. It's going to be uh, prone to any possible attack. But still... Uh, the, the the attack uh, happened once more and while well, it happened twice who says it cannot happen once again or many times more now for the time being it needs to be understood that uh, this happening was not the responsibility for this blow up I mean was not claimed by anybody uh, of course understandably so everybody thinks that uh, it was about it was Ukraine's uh, Ukraine's actions uh, Ukrainian authorities remain silent on the issue. Uh, the the most they are giving the public now are some jokes uh, uh, and uh, you know pejorative jokes about this was bound to happen uh, because that structure was never meant to be there, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But uh, the the eye, we need to keep the eye on the balls here, uh, meaning how much this is going to impact the situation in the front lines. Uh, okay, moving on, and uh, we're now going to uh, talk about something we're talking about each time, sadly, uh, in each episode, and this already has become something of a very notorious rubric we're making, but Russia keeps shelling Ukrainian peaceful cities, and each each week for our each episode there is an entire array of cities that have suffered from Russian shellings. I, would, I will ask my colleague Nastya to dwell a little bit more in detail on which cities and people in which cities sadly suffered from those developments this week. Unfortunately, Russia keeps terrorizing Ukrainian civilians and these tactics of night shellings um, keeps uh, being preserved by Russians. So they keep doing, uh, keep attacking Ukrainian peaceful cities at nights and uh, their aim must be uh, to exhaust Ukrainian people and not let them sleep uh, to um, evoke the fear, uh, the feeling of endless, endless fear in them. And it continues and continues and almost every night uh, Ukrainians wake up because of air raid alerts. Uh, so the last week was not was not an exception, unfortunately, and uh, one of the biggest attack uh, took part on the twelfth of July. Russia hit Zaporizhia, and uh, twenty people were wounded, including eight, eight children. The next night, uh, Russia attacked uh, Kiev uh, using uh, drones and missiles, and the next night, Odessa, Mykolaiv, and Krivi were under attack. And this was one of the most massive uh, drones attack. Um, just over Odessa region, more than 20 drones were uh, were shot. So this, uh, this is actually alarming because we all know that Russia has uh, vast uh, piles of missiles and 
drones and they keep buying these Shahed drones from Iran. So uh, these capabilities of terrorizing uh, Ukrainian civilians are almost unlimited. Uh, Luckily, Ukrainian air defense forces managed to shut almost every missile or drone. So our defenders of skies um, let Ukrainian people survive. Yes, indeed. Uh, sadly, that this is uh, that this has become such a pattern uh, that indeed is uh, so familiar already for for peaceful Ukrainians. But these are not the only uh, war crimes that uh, Russia commits in Ukraine, evidently, and of course everybody knows that by the, by this time. But uh, among other things, what has come to light even. Uh, on a bigger scale than it previously had, is uh, an investigation done by Associated Press, uh, and which hit the headlines recently about how Russia tortures uh, Ukrainian civilians, not just military that have been captured and have become POWs in the front on the front lines, but also civilians that have been captured in the occupied territories and that have been uh, put to uh, an entire chain of uh, what is estimated to be more than a hundred of prisons across across Russia, Belarus, but also occupied territories of Ukraine. And uh, of course, uh, these developments are horrifying. And I believe Nastya also can share more information about what are the findings of this investigation to present them to our audience. Unfortunately, the war crimes and human rights violations against civilians, uh, civilian Ukrainians by Russian by Russians, um, is a widespread issue, and the Associated Press investigation uh, results was really shocking. Even though we know how Russian uh, occupied occupation forces, Russian military treat Ukrainian civilians and military, uh, finding out the numbers and the real scale of uh, this kind of illegal detentions um, is really shocking. So according to this investigation, thousands of Ukrainians, uh, Ukrainian civilians, that's very important to emphasize, are detained in uh, different uh, in different prisons, or detention centers, or even just in some basements, which are not uh, officially prisons. And what is the most dangerous for Ukrainian civilians here is that they have no legal status according to Russian legislation and in general, so they cannot be considered prisoners of war. So these people are just detained and no one knows about their fate. Uh, They literally do not exist in this uh, legal sphere in uh, Russia and temporarily occupied territories. And uh, according to the documents that turned out to be in the uh, Associated Press journalists' hands, uh, uh, in this document it was written that Russians are going to create uh, dozens new uh, such prisons for Ukrainian civilians. So they are planning to build 25 more prisons and six detention centers by 2026. Uh, what is um, 
so uh, horrible here is that Ukrainian prisoner, prisoners, Ukrainian civilians who are detained in these illegal prisons are used uh, for forced labor. Uh, for example, there were evidence that uh, those Ukrainians who were detained, who were kept in those so-called prisons close to front line were forced to uh, dig trenches, for example. Uh, there are also evidences of systematic uh, tortures. And uh, so many uh, people who survived and who talked to the investigators uh, told that uh, almost to every person who is detained there, uh, the electric shock torture is, is used. So uh, the scale of uh, war crimes and this violation of human right rights is, is really awful. And um, the biggest amount of such illegal prisons are on occupied territories. But, uh, of course, um, we can find such places in Russia and Belarus as well. Yes, indeed, this is very gloomy. And, uh, first of all, the world needs to remember about this side of the war. Because a year and a half into the war, it is so easy to forget about these things. So these investigations uh, like this are uh, crucial for the public to uh, to remain interested and sympathetic to Ukraine. And uh, yes, I mean, um, forgetting this kind of thing should never should never happen, as it was the case. Uh, as it was not the case, I mean, after, for instance, the Second World War, we need to understand that uh, crimes that Russia is committing these days in Ukraine are totally compatible with the magnitude of such crimes uh, in the uh, in the past by Nazis, for instance, and that is all the more reason not to not to forget it. Uh, moving on to to the international play and international developments around Ukraine, um, of course, the primary uh, development that uh, i think eclipsed all the all the other developments uh, around ukraine this week at least on international plane was the nato summit that uh, happened on the 11th and uh, 12th of uh, of, of uh, july and frankly it quite unexpectedly uh, became a big bone of discord uh, when it comes to the public perception and when it comes to uh, the self-presentation of the parties during and in the wake of the summit, uh, because uh, indeed there has been much to talk about. And there primarily had been different but very big expectations on the part of Russia in the run-up to the summit, uh, Ukraine had uh, hoped that uh, some specific decisions would be adopted about the future of Ukraine in NATO, uh, as Ukrainian authorities has repeated, had repeatedly uh, told the world nobody uh, was hoping that uh, Ukraine would be admitted or promised immediate membership during the very summit, because everybody understands that uh, Ukraine is in the middle of a war now, which uh, makes it impossible to uh, for a country to um, accede to, to to NATO, but at the same time, Ukraine wanted something solid. Ukraine wa wanted to be recognized as uh, part, as a notional, so to say, part of NATO and a member to be as soon as the war is going to end. Uh, on the other hand, um, the uh, final communique of the. 
uh, of the NATO summit was much weaker. And of course, this was uh, very chilly met in Ukraine, I would say, because the communique did not contain any uh, specific wordings, uh, about any specific promises as to when uh, or under which specific conditions Ukraine would be able to join NATO. There was a development, a positive one for Ukraine, that uh, Ukraine would not be required to undergo a membership action plan, uh, unlike uh, it had previously been the case, uh, the plan, I mean. But uh, at the same time, Ukraine was uh, quite frustrated, and Ukrainians were quite frustrated with the uh, vagueness of language, Uh, that was used uh, in the final communique. And of course, such chilly reaction of Ukrainians was also um, quite badly met by, by the NATO membership members themselves. They thought that uh, Ukraine was uh, quite unthankful to all the other things that had been done for Ukraine. And as for me, and uh, I would also be interested in Nastya's take on this, but as, as for me, both sides had been embroiled in the, in the emotional side of the story very much during and in the wake uh, of the summit. Uh, so I would say that both sides are right in something and wrong in something, uh, because yes, I understand why um, the vagueness of the wordings in the final communique of NATO summit, why it comes off as a weakness. And I agree that indeed it is a weakness uh, in the eyes of Russia, that uh, Europe and uh, Euro-Atlantic space cannot uh, decide on any, on any rigid steps towards any response uh, to Russia's aggression. But at the same time, I also agree that uh, The mere wordings is not something that Ukraine should be focusing on as a result of the summit, uh, because first of all, yes, indeed, we need to manage our expectations and nothing is going to happen anyway before the war is ended. And more importantly, we should not lose uh, the sight of the fact that during the summit there was uh, much more weaponry promised to Ukraine, as well as the long-term support was pledged uh, for Ukraine, not just military, but also financial general support to Ukraine on the part of the G7. Uh, because as we will uh, discuss a little bit later, uh, there was there were other G7 members that were present at the summit other than the members of the NATO bloc itself. So this is something we also need to uh, remember, uh, that uh, even though the counteroffensive has already been going, the procurement of weapons is uh, not the closed chapter for our Western partners. They keep doing that. They keep committing uh, weaponry uh, in uh, quite big volumes. But of course, we would like even more to, to have a decisive victory over Russia. But still... Uh, What I'm getting at is that the picture here is not black and white, and once the emotions wane off, I think we'll understand that this was a pit stop, uh, and uh, this, NATO, this NATO summit was a pit stop, and we need to move on with what we have to bigger achievements and primarily to the victory in the, in the front lines. Nastya, what's your take on this? Do you have any, any maybe more detailed uh, look at, uh, at the outcomes of the summit? Yes, I will provide uh, a, a little bit more facts, but indeed the results of the Vilnius summit um, are one of the most controversial uh, topic in the media space this week. So uh, some experts assess uh, the summit as a failure and the demonstration of weakness inside the alliance and the lack of even lack of unity in face of Russian threat. 
some experts and some politicians are more pragmatic in their assessments and they think that we should focus on uh, more practical things and shouldn't have our expectations to be too high and focus on more uh, more important things like smaller steps. So let's look at the both sides on the positive ones and negative ones. So uh, if we talk about the negative ones, indeed, Ukraine didn't uh, receive the official invitation to join NATO. But on the other hand, we should say that no one may be expected that Ukraine would be invited to join NATO immediately and would become the NATO main member right tomorrow. Uh, what is more uh, disappointing and frustrating is the unclear conditionality of uh, future membership uh, or future joining uh, NATO by Ukraine. Because as it was formulated, um, Ukraine will become a member of NATO when all the allies agree and all the conditions are fulfilled. And no clarity about uh, what conditions should be fulfilled and what are the uh, circumstances, what are the indicators that um, can make all the allies agree. So this vague formulation is, uh, to my mind, the most frustrating part. So we we still haven't received the clear uh, understanding, clear steps, uh, clear maybe timeline uh, in terms of certain actions, I mean, the ending of war or something like that, to become NATO member. Uh, if we talk about positive practical steps, as uh, Maxim told, the map was cancelled for Ukraine. So we have minus one step before becoming a NATO member. Also, the Ukraine-NATO Council was established, which is a practical uh, entity, practical body, uh, under the auspices of which any of the side can call on the gathering, the meeting, and discuss the urgent and crisis things. So Ukraine has the right to call on the um, the meeting uh, to discuss some security problems uh, and crisis. Uh, and we also have a quite substantial and vast practical assistance program. And as uh, Maxim mentioned about the uh, weaponry, this program covers this um, volume of weaponry Ukraine is going to get. And I will uh, give some examples of such assistance. For example, Germany is going to allocate 700 million uh, euro for weaponry, providing Patriot system, Leopard tanks and murders. Uh, France is going to provide uh, scalp missiles and equipment for demining. Uh, Norway is going to give tuna sums systems and about a thousand of uh, drones, Black Hornet. Uh, the Great Britain is uh, giving $65 million uh, for weaponry. And what is also very important, um, as a result of uh, this summit, the coalition for F-16 training was um, formed. So 11 states are going to take part in training of Ukrainian pilots uh, how to uh, use F-16 jets. Uh, so that is, and by the way, today the president of the U.S. Uh, confirmed, like launched the uh, trainings. He confirmed the beginning of this training program. And also, um, the work on increased inter increased interoperability will be going on, which is uh, technically very important 
uh, for Ukraine to join the alliance. Uh, if we talk about this negative aspects, if we talk about uh, disappointments and frustrations. Indeed, uh, some vagueness of formulations and lack of decisiveness in um, formulating these conditions can be a sign for Russia that NATO um, allies within NATO cannot be united on this issue and maybe Russia can um, perceive it as a possibility to blackmail further, to threaten uh, Ukraine and allies uh, simultaneously further and also maybe may look at it as a gap for some negotiations and forcing Ukraine into certain uh, conditions. Uh, but of course, the uh, commands and the statements made by the uh, leaders of NATO states were quite uh, reassuring. And even the president of the U.S. told that uh, eventually Ukraine will become the member of NATO uh, after the well, the just peace is reached. But again, what can we uh, perceive as a just peace? What are conditions of this peace and when it will be reached? So uh, only the course of events, the actions taken by the allies within NATO will show uh, what were the results of these summits, really and indeed. Yes, indeed. And in any case, this is going to be, this is and is going to stay the major topic that uh, we're going to follow and cover for you in this, uh, in our in the episodes of our podcasts and in other materials we produce, because this is a macro topic uh, that uh, appeals very much to, to the nature of everything that is uh, happening around Ukraine. Uh, so we'll keep you posted on any further developments and analysis we have for the issue. Uh, to uh, crown our part uh, of, uh, of the international, uh, of what has been happening uh, around Ukraine internationally, uh, there are two more topics that we uh, can briefly touch upon. First of all, this is the visit of the president of South Korea, Yoon suk Yeol, uh, who visited Ukraine on Saturday. Uh, this was the first-of-a-kind visit. Uh, reportedly, uh, South Korean presidents had never visited Ukraine before. Uh, please, Nastya, can you explain why this uh, visit was important, if not special? This visit was important and special indeed, and not just because it was the first visit of South Korean president to Ukraine. And uh, not only because of practical assistance that it brought, and I will mention it. Uh, the uh, South Korea is going to provide uh, $150 million as, a, as an assistant package to Ukraine. However, these things are not the most important regarding this visit. Here we should look at the geopolitical side of it and on the military side of this, uh, military technical side of this visit. So we should remember that the South Korea is a powerful uh, actor in the East, Eastern Asia. Uh, so um, it is influential country in the region. So this visit of uh, the president of South Korea to Ukraine is a symbol and a sign that um, powerful players of the region are with Ukraine and are going to support Ukraine. What is also important about South Korea in this regard is that it has developed defense industry. 
so the country produces uh, the whole weaponry systems and some parts of uh, weaponry. And Ukraine didn't get this military uh, assistance, technical assistance before. It was just uh, humanitarian aid uh, or mm, uh, some protective uh, protective equipment for soldiers now even though there are no official confirmations there are talks that some agreements were reached and uh, south korea will change its attitude towards uh, uh, providing uh, weaponry to ukraine so maybe we will get some uh, assistance from this partner in 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 terms of uh, technical assistance uh, what is also important to mention is that uh, South Korea is going to take part in the renovation and rebuilding of Ukraine. So this country has an expertise and uh, financial capacities to invest in um, post-war reconstruction, which is also very important. Yes, indeed, as likewise with the, with the previous topics, we're going to uh, follow the developments in Ukrainian relations with uh, South Korea particularly, but also with other countries from that part of the world, world because uh, indeed this is something that had been an omission in Ukraine's foreign policy largely previously before the war. And uh, now, of course, we come to understand how much of, of importance such uh, relations with such countries can have, both uh, in terms of military support and uh, but also generally uh, to have deep connections and to counter Russian narratives uh, and what Russia has generally to offer in those other parts of the world. And uh, the other topic probably that we'll touch upon today very briefly is that today, uh, the 17th of uh, July, is the last day uh, on of the last iteration of the pending iteration of the Black Sea Green Deal. It uh, is uh, ending, namely today, and there is no further prolongation of the Green Deal as of this moment. Russia demands that such prolongation be conditional on uh, several steps uh, taken uh, for the benefit of Russia, uh, primarily uh, the reconnection of the Selhozbank to one of the Russia's banks, uh, to uh, to the SWIFT uh, system, and this, of course, should be viewed as uh, as Russia's attempt to circumvent sanctions and to have some sanctions lifted off to set a precedent for further negotiations to show that look, we're not only the ones who face the imposition of sanctions, but also the ones who can negotiate, they're being lifted off. And maybe that's how Russia sees a path towards any uh, future negotiations. So that, of course, is uh, would be, not is, but would be a dangerous precedent. As of now, one way or another, there is no prolongation of the Green Deal. And that, of course, poses several, diff several difficult but interesting questions. First is whether Ukraine is going to uh, be able to keep this format alive of the Green Deal bilaterally with Turkey, because Russia, for the time being, is largely uh, absent from this part of the sea. How much uh, whether Russia is going to is going to move uh, towards this part of the sea militarily and block the lanes that uh, that passage lanes that exist so far for Ukrainian uh, for Ukrainian and international vessels remains unclear. Uh, we will have to see. But indeed, this is 
uh, this is very much about the images of the countries. Uh, is Turkey, because Turkey, I, I would I would say, is key in this respect, uh, in this in this situation. Is Turkey going to be going to stand up enough to Russia to demonstrate that we're going to uh, keep this uh, Green Deal, even though bilaterally, anyway, because this is what is needed, and that way. Turkey will demonstrate its leadership in the region, but also this will benefit Ukraine, or whether the um, or whether the uh, deal is going to to be dead in the water anyway. And secondly, of course, it is important in case the green de- the uh, the grain deal is not uh, prolonged for some time or at all. Uh, what is important is. Uh, whether the other capacities for the exports that Ukraine has are going to be enough for this upcoming uh, crops season and for the forthcoming month of export of grains. Because as far as we know, uh, since 2022, there have been several uh, ways that Ukraine has resorted to to export its uh, its grain. One was the solidarity lanes that uh, were established in cooperation with the European Union. That that was the exports of Ukrainian grain through the western border with uh, the EU member states. And the second one is uh, the development of the uh, river ports on the uh, Danube. That is in the southern uh, that flows through the southern Odessa Oblast uh, in Ukraine. There are several ports that have been developing uh, in the last year uh, to help Ukraine with this. Uh, but uh, it indeed is interesting whether those capacities will be enough, even if uh, if the grain deal is not prolonged. So we'll have to see. We uh, plan to keep this uh, topic on the agenda and equally to uh, provide our analysis on this to you in our future episodes. Uh, that being said, thank you very much, dear listeners, for staying with us during this episode and generally during our podcasts. Uh, let me remind you that uh, my name is Maxim Panchenko. I'm an analyst and journalist at uh, Ukraine World, and I was joined, as usually, by my colleague Anastasia Harasimchuk, also analyst and uh, journalist. And uh, we teamed up, teamed up today to discuss the 70 events in and around Ukraine over the past week. Let me also remind you that Ukraine World uh, is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian NGOs in the media development sector. And uh, you can support us at patreon.com slash Ukraine World. We look forward to your uh, support, not just for the development, but also, as you know, we uh, regularly go to the areas that are adjacent to the front lines to visit those areas to bring humanitarian aid to people, but also we uh, use the resources that we receive as your support to buy uh, vehicles that can help our military at the front lines. Thank you very much, and we'll meet you in our next episodes.